If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. castle gives you is concentrated power. It gives you the ability to defend a, um, a particular location with only a handful of men against a much larger army. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. That was Mark Morris talking about the military uses of castles. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. With the weather improving, I'm sure lots of you will be heading out soon to visit historical properties and castles will be top of many people's lists. Someone who knows a great deal about these remarkable buildings is the medieval historian Mark Morris, whose writing and broadcasting career has covered Britain's castles in depth. Our section editor, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with Mark in London recently to get the lowdown on how castles were built and the many uses they've been put to over the centuries. Medieval castles are a staple of school curriculums. They've inspired countless artworks and musical compositions, why do castles continue to capture our imaginations in such a strong way? I'll answer the question personally to begin with. I think in my case it's because they're something which you're taking to at a very young age or can be taken to at a very young age. For example, if you say, if I say to my children now who are primary school age, oh, let's go and visit a Franciscan um, church, you know, let's go and visit a friary, they might be kind of like, oh, yeah. Whereas if I say, let's go and visit a castle, they know that there will probably be foam swords and, and catapults and dressing up and running around and wells and drawbridges. So that kind of thing is very easy to sell to us when we're small. And, of course, the, you know, the, the, the fairy tales you're told of um, knights and dragons and princesses. So I th- my, my guess is we're introduced to them at a very young age and we associate castles with fun, um, which might surprise, you know, the people who in previous centuries have died defending them um, or attacking them. But that would be my guess as to why they hold such a, a, a sort of a place in the public's hearts and they still attract so many visitors. Probably, I would guess, and this is just a guess I hate to add, in the UK, probably more than any other type of um, historic attraction, possibly accepting cathedrals. And before we go any further, um, what would you define as a castle? What would set a castle apart from a fort or a stately home? Well, uh, the, the, the traditional definition, which goes back about 50, 60 years, was offered by a historian um, called um, Professor R. Allen Brown. And he said that a castle was both a fort and a stately home combined. Um, I, if you look at Roman times, um, the aristocrats lived in villas and the soldiery lived in forts. And if you looked at post-medieval times, then... A similar division applies. So the aristocrats lived in stately homes, places like, say, Hampton Court or Nunsuch, 
and um, they built dedicated um, forts for the soldiers like Deal Castle or uh, Pendennis Castle, which were just forts for um, soldiers and master gunners. Whereas in the Middle Ages, you have that combination of both defence and dwelling, which constitutes a castle. The problem with that, as has been pointed out in recent decades, is that if you take a strict definition of a castle, which is a, a, a fortified stately home, say, that might exclude a lot of late medieval castles, which, whilst they look the part, in several cases, perhaps the majority of cases, do not seem to be viable as serious fortifications, cannot qualify as serious fortifications. So they might have drawbridges and portcullises and murder holes and arrow loops, etc., but they're not necessarily um, functional as military hardware. The traditional narrative, of course, is that William the Conqueror and the Normans invented the castle in England. They brought the castle over here. Mm. Is that fair? Do you back that? Yeah, I think that's one of those cases where you, you can say the traditional narrative is right. Um, they didn't you know, invent the castle. The castles have been flourishing on the continent for several generations. But not in England. There was an attempt in the 1960s, a research project in the 1960s, that tried to discover the origins of English castles. Um, and at the time, with the Norman Conquest in general, continuous arguments were on vogue. So people were pointing to all sorts of, of cultural similarities between pre-conquest England and um, pre-conquest Normandy. Um, but in the case of castles, it's very hard not to say impossible to find a, a piece of fortification which could be is would be serious enough to be considered a castle in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, and I think the, the, the proof of that um, is the way aristocrats, or the way fighting men behaved in pre-conquest England. So if you take, for example, uh, the, the Godwin family, the Godwin sons who famously fell out with Edward the Confessor um, in the early 1050s, when they, uh, when push comes to shove, when they, when they fall out with the king, they do not flee to their estates. They do not hole up in a fort fortress. They flee abroad. So Harold Godwinson and his, his, his younger brother flee to Ireland. Um, Godwin himself, the father, and his other children flee to Flanders. And what aristocrats do, and they're not the only ones to do it, other aristocrats are, are seen doing it in the 1050s, is they raise naval forces and they raise a fleet and then invade. Nobody rushes to, say, Norwich or Bosham or anywhere and holds up the way they are doing on the continent throughout the reign of William the Conqueror. So, or throughout the, say, the, the, the pre-conquest rule of William as Duke, I should say. So I think the proof of the, of, of the architectural situation is in the politics. You have castles and siege warfare and sieges on the continent, and you don't have anything like that in England until after the conquest. And also all the source material, um, things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, mention the, the wave of castle building that sweeps the country in the wake of William's victory. So you get comments like, I can't remember them exactly, but paraphrasing, uh, you know, that they built castles throughout the land and oppressed the poor men. Um, you get those kind of laments in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. You get references to castles in Doomsday Book. And, of course, you have the, the architectural and archaeological evidence of the castles themselves. So in, in terms of uh, castles, 1066 is, for England... Uh, and by extension, the rest of the British Isles, the starting point. Imagine you're a Norman military tactician. Mm. Sell the castle to me. Why was it such a valuable tool to have in your arsenal? Um, well, what the castle gives you is concentrated power. 
it gives you the ability to defend a um, a particular location with only a handful of men against a much larger army. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. I mean, uh, uh, there's a historian called um, Professor Robert Bartlett who talks about uh, the advantage, if you had to sort of characterise early castles, he says, I think he says they were small and high, uh, small and tall, I would say, um, if you compare them to what had gone before. So if you compare uh, a medieval castle, uh, a Norman one like, say, um, Berkhamsted or even the Tower of London, and you look at the area enclosed within its bailey walls, it's far smaller than, say, uh, a Roman uh, fort like Porchester um, or um, uh, Richborough in Kent. Whereas those Roman forts needed hundreds and hundreds of soldiers to man their walls, you could do it at a castle with maybe 50, 60 men, and you could have that castle hold out. They won't hold out indefinitely, but they will hold out for sufficient numbers of weeks or possibly months for the rest of the army, for the cavalry to arrive. So they're a way of cementing your power, of riveting your power into place. And you see that with the, 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 the military narrative of the conquest is one castle founded after another. From the moment the Normans get off the boat at uh, Pevensey on the Biotapestry, you can see them founding a castle, digging a castle at Hastings in 1066. And wherever they go thereafter, they are planting new castles. Would you say that was when the castle was its most... Um, significant and it's most successful? Uh, certainly in terms of numbers, that's when the numbers, you know, goes off the graph. I mean, it goes from a standing start. I should have said there's maybe four, possibly five castles founded in pre-conquest England, but significantly by continental interlopers, French friends of Edward the Confessor. So in, in the 20 years or so before 1066, you find a, a, a few castles dotted along the Welsh marches. Um, but after the conquest, you get the deluge. So certainly that's when the numbers shoot up. And whenever I'm talking about castles, I sometimes get the audience to say, you know, think of a famous English medieval castle, particularly royal ones. Um, in nine, nine or even more cases out of ten, the castle they will say, if they say Windsor or um, Nottingham or Norwich or York or Newcastle, chances are that those castles were founded in the first generation probably the first few years after 1066, because that's when they're being introduced. In architectural terms, though, the majority of these castles, huge percentage, aren't architecturally that spectacular, because in the first instance, they're all made of earth and timber. I mean, all castles begin life like building sites with earthworks being created and timber um, palisades and, and other fortifications being thrown up. Because we're looking back... Uh, from the present, we see the, the end product after centuries of development where you have grand stone walls. Um, that was very rare in the 11th century. You'd only have the most important castles, um, a handful of royal castles and William's um, most important lieutenants investing in stone buildings. So the Tower of London most famously, Colchester as well, uh, Richmond in Yorkshire, Chepstow in South Wales... There you get um, stone halls and stone towers going up immediately after 1066. Um, so in architectural terms, it's not a golden age. And that, if you wanted a golden age, it's probably somewhere in the high Middle Ages, probably late 13th century. Um, the castles Edward I built in Wales, they are built on a, on a grandeur that I 
can't think is surpassed in the British Isles. So how did these castles shape or change the course of the history of the British Isles? I'm thinking in a broad sense, but also whether you can give us some specific examples of when the strength or weakness of a castle really turned the tide of events. Yeah, well, I mean, the way you phrased the second part of that question means we're still focused on military events, doesn't it? Um, But one of the things, of course, with castles, and I think this is what explains their broad appeal, is when you go to a castle, um, there is a certain amount of blood and thunder military history Inevitably, But there's also, of course, people spinning you tales about, oh, this is where this princess was born, or this is where this marriage was consummated, or this is where this poor individual got stabbed in the back. So they always offer, because they are the houses of the super rich, and and often the the, the political elite as well, that means, um, there are places where all the major political events happened. So... It's, it's not all human life is there. It's that this is where the the, 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 the great and the good and the not so good, um, you know, live their lives within the confines of these walls. So there's that. Um, so you can find castles which in which uh, decisive medieval events happened. In terms of military, specifically military affairs, the one example that springs to mind uh, is a castle uh, down near me in Kent, which is Dover. And Dover is a very famous castle, rightly so. It's it's a huge site. Um, it's the the medieval core of it was built by uh, Henry II, the king who famously did for Archbishop Thomas Becket, and it was later um, redeveloped by his son King John. Um, so Dover's a fascinating castle, and it's it's come under attack only a couple of times in its career. The most famous occasion being at the very end of John's reign in 1216 when it was besieged by um, the son of the King of France, Louis, who came at the invitation of John's opponents, the Magna Carta barons, to take John's throne. Um, and and, a, and a, a, a very long, drawn-out and bitterly fought siege ensued. So had that castle fallen, and one of the things I should have added there was that uh, the, the defenders of the castle, John's supporters, were successful. They successfully held off um, the future um, Louis VIII and his army. Had they not done that, had Dover Castle fallen, I think it's quite reasonable that that would have tipped the tide for John's supporters. John, John's uh, base was already in a, in a very um, sorry condition. Um, in fact, there's a chronicler of John's death that says that when he was told that the uh, garrison at Dover wanted to seek terms, it caused his illness to return. <laughs> so there's, you can possibly make the argument that the siege of Dover or news of the siege of Dover um, was what finally finished off bad King John. But had had that castle fallen, um, I think it's quite reasonable to, to suppose that we might have seen a King Louis and a, new, a change of dynasty at that point rather than what actually happened, which was Dover held out and um, we ended up with John's son, King Henry III. Picking up on your point about sieges there, mm. what were the determining factors in whether <clears throat> a besieged castle fell or not? Oh, there, there are there as many as you can think. Um, there are obvious things like, uh, uh, you know, the, the castle itself, is it a viable defence? So does it have strong defensive, thick walls? Uh, does it have multiple lines of defence? Um is it well garrisoned? Um, does it have enough men to, to 
to patrol and man those walls. Um, but also, I mean, more practical things, is it well stocked? Because the, the, if all else fails when you're attacking uh, any kind of stronghold, um, you can say, well, we cannot, we cannot break in, we cannot tunnel under, perhaps because it is moated, we cannot smash our way in. Um, but eventually they will get hungry. So if we surround it and make sure that it's completely isolated and no food gets in, that is the most, that is the surest way. As was said repeatedly by chroniclers throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, that, you know, there's no weapon like hunger for getting people to surrender. Um, you can think, I can think of examples of that in William the Conqueror's reign um, uh, onwards. Um, so if a castle is well stocked, that will determine how long it lasts. There's an example in my book from the Civil War, I think, where a letter is written to Oliver Cromwell about the siege of Pontefract during the Second Civil War. And they advise Cromwell, they say the castle is well stocked and they've got in enough sort of, you know, salted beef, etc., to last them for a year. So there's, there's, there's that as a determining factor. Um, all, all, all kinds of things. I mean, the elements as well, because it's, it, it's not just the people in the castle, if they're well supplied... Um, well stocked and of course if they've got a, a fresh source of water the well they're going to be able to hold out for a long time um, but I think you can assume um, that for the people outside it can be like a sort of uh, just a waiting game and, and a holiday camp and all they need to do is wait but that creates logistical difficulties for the besieger if you've got thousands of men sitting idle then you have the logistical problem of keeping that camp um, in, a, in a, a sanitary condition, you've got to remove all the waste from the from the horses and the men. You've got to get enough food in to keep them happy and not deserting. And also, you're exposed to the elements. If it's getting on and winter is approaching and it's, you're into sort of uh, negative temperatures and you're living under canvas, then eventually you're going to have to say, we'll have to come back in the spring and resume this. So um, those kind of considerations are as important, if not more important, than the physical defences of the castle itself. What were some of the most interesting defence mechanisms that castles <clears throat> of this period had? We think about portcullises, mm. um, and you mentioned earlier murder holes. Mm. What can you tell us about those? Starting with the conquest, in the first instance, you don't see any of these features. Um, the, the, the strength is in the height, and the strength is in the different circuits of defence. So you might have, you know, uh, ditches, moats, palisades. Um it's not until you get sort of uh, into the 12th or late 12th, even the early 13th century, that you start to see um, defences really being elaborated. So in the 11th and early 12th centuries, castles, however sophisticated they are as dwellings, as defences, they really only have this passive strength. There's not that um, panoply of, of defensive kit. Whereas when you get to the end of the 12th century and the turn of the 13th century, you start to get things that you can check off a list, like drawbridges, portcullises, arrow loops, um, barbicans, uh, which seems to be one of the few examples of a word that's been imported from the uh, Middle East. Um, and presumably, therefore, the concept of having an outer, a gate beyond the gate. So um, you can see, it's, again, this is a fairly traditional argument, but you, I think you can see a speeding up of the the dialogue between attack and defence round about the year 1200. One of the things that appears round about that time, the first mention of it in, in, in any British source is the siege of Dover in 1216, is you get the first mention there in a, in a narrative source of a trebuchet, uh, which is a throwing engine more powerful than throwing engines that had 
come in the past because it worked on uh, the principle of um, stored energy. You dropped a counterweight to fling the arm rather than just uh, tension or torsion. You didn't sort of wind it up like a spring. You dropped a heavy weight of several tons. That caused the arm to fling up in the air and it made for a more powerful throwing machine. You get the sense... Um, in the narrative sources at that point, that this was a new thing. People are talking about it in novel terms. So that would be used to attack castles or that would be used as a defence well, mechanism? Both. both. You see it used throughout the 13th century by both attackers and defenders, but particularly for uh, attackers because it's a way of throwing heavy things in an attempt to um, uh, weaken walls to c cause them to collapse. So it's kind of like your heaviest artillery. Now, again, it's an old-fashioned argument, but you can arguably see the way people go about building castles change into the 13th century. There's far less emphasis on great towers, which have been the fashion for the previous century or more, and greater emphasis play, placed on defending the outer circuit. So you get very grand twin-towered gatehouses, lots of kind of round uh, towers on every corner. So you get the kind of... Uh, curtain wall castles that are created uh, throughout Wales in the 13th century, uh, Wales in particular, and culminating with Edward I's castles that I mentioned at the beginning, places like Conway Castle, Beaumaris Castle, Rithlin, Harlech and Carnarvon, which employ um, this kind of latest military thinking. If you go somewhere like, say, Chepstow in South Wales, which was built immediately after the Norman Conquest, there is a very big, impressive 11th century hall there, but it has no military hardware. Whereas if you go to Carnarvon, you can spend hours walking through passages within the walls, on top of the walls, and I don't know whether anyone's ever counted them. Someone must have done, but there are scores and scores, possibly hundreds of crossbow loops or arrow loops. So this is a castle that positively bristles with armament and it leaves you under no uh, illusion, leaves you in no doubt that this was a building designed to keep you out and to kill you if necessary. And what was a murder hole? A murder hole, sorry, that was your question at the beginning, wasn't it? <laughs> well, a murder hole, I couldn't tell you uh, precisely when the term comes into fashion. Meurtrier is the French word. Um, but they are the holes within a gatehouse. Um, as you pass into the gatehouse itself if, and you look up, if there are holes in the ceiling, um, they give the potential for people standing on the floor above to drop things on top of you. Whatever, you know, lime, boiling water, perhaps not boiling oil, that's the famous old one that we're told there isn't any evidence for. Um, but whatever kind of nastiness you could contrive, it gives you the opportunity to, to put that on people's heads, to shoot down with, with crossbow bolts for that matter. Now, um, people have said in, in recent years, oh, well, perhaps these were more likely to be for extinguishing fires at the gate, which is, is a sort of uh, slightly um, uh, perhaps disappointing way to see them. But I think, I think in many cases they, they, there is little doubt that they could be used uh, for the purpose that murder holes suggest for killing people as they were trying to get through that particular choke point. I think I've fallen into the trap, focusing so much on the blood and thunder, as mm. you said. But you mentioned quite rightly earlier on that they also had a very important residential purpose. Um, what would it have been like to live in a castle or just outside of a castle? And what kind of communities did they um, did they hold? I think it would be quite different, obviously, if you're living inside or outside. Let's take inside first. Um, 
the, the important point to realise, I think, and, and I think people do realise this increasingly, is when you go to a castle, especially if it's a ruinous one, to remember that as originally built, they were palaces. They were palaces fit for the richest people in medieval society. So it was only, you know, few score people who could afford to live in one, uh, going up to and including the king. So earls, the greatest barons, and the king himself got to live in castles. So, you know, I always have to sort of bite my tongue if I'm being led around a castle. It's increasingly rare these days if I'm going around a castle when I see a tour group, a school group perhaps, being told, can you imagine how miserable it would be to live here? It would have been cold and drafty. It's like, well, yes, perhaps it would by 21st century standards. But in the 12th, 13th or 14th centuries, this would have been the highest level of opulence imaginable. So you're going to have, particularly in the, those later centuries, uh, glazed windows or partially glazed windows. You're going to have roaring fires. You're going to have ensuite accommodation. You're going to have perhaps water running down lead pipes uh, or being able to draw up from the well. So in terms of medieval living conditions, they were as good as could be imagined um, because these were the richest people in society paying for them. So however ruinous they appear now, remember they were palaces. The other thing to say, of course, about uh, um, castles in this period, so before you get, say, to the 15th century, is that their owners would only have been in residence very occasionally. Perhaps for, you know, in the case of the king and some of the, his castles, his more far-flung castles, kings had dozens and dozens of castles dotted all around the country as a legacy of the Norman Conquest. Kings had estates everywhere. Um, so a, a, a castle, say, you know, there were castles that were favoured, uh, like Windsor Castle, um, or in the case of just thinking of someone like King John, he favoured Corfe Castle and Marlborough Castle. Um, but there were royal castles, you know, in the far north, places like sort of Scarborough, um, that, that might get visited, you know, once or not at all during the course of an entire reign. But they were... They were um, uh, kept up by a resident constable and a sort of skeletal garrison of men. They could be beefed up in times of unrest. Um, so kings didn't have one residence. Kings and to to pretty much the same extent, great aristocrats like earls were always on the move around their estates. Um, so their furniture travelled with them to some extent, their chests, their beds. Um, so most of, the, most of the time these castles stood empty. So that's one thing. In terms of what it was like for everybody else, well, you know, it's uh, probably better to have been a servant in royal pay um, than someone who was, you know, um, begging outside the castle gates. But as you went further down the scale in the royal household, your living conditions are going to become worse and worse. So you're not going to be getting your own room to sleep in. You'll have to sort of curl up wherever you can uh, in sort of rushes on the floor. Um, so, you know, medieval society, it goes without saying, is a very uh, strictly hierarchical society. So there are, it, with, even within the castle walls, there are extremes of luxury and comfort, uh, right down to sort of the person who mucks out the horses. You know. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
you need indeed. Castles and castle sieges are a statement part of any movie set in the medieval ages. Um, which films get it right and which get it very wrong? <sighs> the trouble is, when when people get it right, the films tend to be boring. And when they, when they when when the films are sort of exciting and sort of the things that cause you to grab more popcorn, they're often the worst offenders when it comes to historical accuracy. I'm trying to think. There was a film made about the siege of Rochester about. 10 years ago now, perhaps less, called Ironclad, which is a fairly low-budget sort of schlocky English production um, about that particular siege. And the thing is, often the detail, um, with all historical, I think with all historical dramas, often the detail will be correct because they will fuss about the armour and the weapons and they will get those things right because they'll have a historical advisor. But the person who has actually written the lines people say and determined the way characters behave have people behave either in in a a totally modern way, so they are modern people in medieval dress, or they will have have them behave in a way which they think is archetypically medieval. So they'll be sort of thundering around saying, off with his head, you know, and put him on the rack and, you know, torturing people left, right and centre. Um, so uh, I, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example of a siege in a, car, a castle siege in a film, and I can't think of any. I did actually want to ask you about Edward I, mm. who, who you mentioned as one of the the greatest or most prolific, at least, um, castle builders mm. of the Middle Ages. Um, why were castles such an important part of his military strategy? Especially well, in Wales. Well, I mean, it's much like the Norman Conquest, the, the, the conquest of Wales that took place in from the 1270s to the 1290s during Edward's reign. Um, Edward uh, conceived of it, you can see in the letters he writes in the 1280s, um, trying to get funding from um, the English in order to uh, sustain that campaign. He uses the kind of rhetoric that says, we are solving this problem once and for all. And it's, 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 in some of those letters, it's couched as nothing less than a clash of cultures, a clash of civilizations. even. There's a sense that, um, that's been building throughout the 13th century of uh, these people to our west, the Welsh, are in need of being conquered. I hasten to say this is the attitude being expressed in, 13th, in, the, in the letters and writs, not just of Edward, but of 13th century churchmen and of 13th century uh, letter writers in general. Um, so... Uh, there have been campaigns in Wales since, you know, the Norman Conquest and before. Um, and by Edward's reign, um, the, the sort of growing strength of the princes of North Wales, the princes of Gwynedd, um, there were constant standoffs during the reign of Edward's father, Henry III. And Henry III had on at least two occasions in the 1240s and the 1250s led campaigns in Wales that had done very badly. In 1257, Henry III went up to northwest Wales with Edward, who was only 17 years old, in tow and is fairly obviously forced into a fairly ignominious retreat. Um, So when Edward comes into conflict with the rulers of the same region in his own reign, uh, he's very determined that this is going to be a decisive victory. And so what he does is, is he plants new state-of-the-art castles. So actually the campaigns of Edward I, and I, I, I sort of hesitate to say this having written a book about him, but the campaigns of Edward I are, are for the most part 
I wouldn't not particularly sexy affairs. You know, they are all about logistical build-up, and I try and stress the sheer amount of material, men and ships that he was mustering in Chester and leading along the North Welsh coast. Um, so they just kind of roll forwards like a steamroller, but the, the, they never have to do it again afterwards, right, because he establishes these huge hulking castles which break... Not only are they sort of invincible in military terms, but I think they serve as, 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 as symbols to break the spirit of the Welsh. Because if someone comes along and plants a castle the size of the things Henry III had been building, the Welsh overran them and tore them down. But if someone comes up to um, uh, Snowdonia and builds Carnarvon on your doorstep, then it sends out the message, no, you are conquered. You know, there, there is the sense then of what is the point? This... this economic superpower to our east, i.e. the Kingdom of England, is irresistible. Um, and at that point, once the last Princes of Wales are um, extinguished in, in um, the 1280s, the, 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 the leaders of Welsh society below them are very quick to go over to Edward I and do homage to him. And I think that is uh, uh, the castles in that particular conflict um, are instrumental in sort of uh, defining that new era as I say, in, in, in sending out a statement saying, that's it, you know, there is no more Welsh independence. In the first instance, castles are associated with oppression. They are weapons of conquest. So that's that's an important thing to remember, especially if you go to Mott and Bailey sites. This is not a phrase I've mentioned so far, but the, the generic type of early castle in England after the conquest is a great mound called a Mott and a lower area which encloses your other buildings called a Bailey. Um, those kind of sites now... Uh, grassed over and have an English heritage gift shop in lots of cases and are nice places to go for a walk with the children or the dogs. In the 11th century, not so much. In the 11th century, they are designed as weapons of conquest and perceived and, and bewailed by the Anglo-Saxons as weapons of conquest. So that's the way castles begin. How they are perceived going forward, it's, it's like as if they start as a way of enforcing lordship. Once lordship becomes established, then they don't have to necessarily wear that martial aspect all the time. And as you go forward, um, it's possible to construct um, a more um, benign image of the Middle Ages where you have a good local lord um, and he is, you know, um, in terms of... Well, if you think of, for example, what people want if they are lords in the Middle Ages, just as if they are, you know, powerful um, executives today. What they want to do is maximise their profits. How do you maximise your profits? Well, you don't get that by going around terrorising people and setting fire to their homesteads, etc. So once you've established your lordship, um, to keep it functioning and to get the profits and the agricultural surpluses, then you need to sort of make sure that peace is maintained. So for most of the Middle Ages going forward, um, this is, an, again, something that, you know, you try and stress for people who don't necessarily study the Middle Ages day in, day out, is that it wasn't some sort of anarchic wasteland beyond the castle walls, that England, after 1066, and indeed uh, before, was a well-governed, well-organised country. And most of the time right-thinking people wanted to maintain that peace. Of course, as in all periods, sometimes politics broke down and sometimes peace broke down, and in those circumstances, even sensible people had to reach for their swords. But you, as I say, it's possible when you go to visit these castles, you have to imagine 99% of the time that the panorama around them was a peaceful one. I've got one more question, which I think might be an impossible one. 
if you were uh, only had a very short amount of time in the UK and you could only visit <laughs> one castle, which one would it be and why? Probably Dover, I think. Um, that's such an unfair question because if it's, you know, there, I'd really like to get it down to sort of a top ten. But I mean, Do- Dover. How about a top three? Oh, okay, a top three. Okay, <laughs> well, a top three. In terms of contrast, then I would probably say Dover. In because one, because we've already said it, it's a great castle in its own right, but also because English heritage about a decade ago redeveloped it, the the interior of the Great Tower. So it gives you a very vivid sense of what the interior of a of a twelfth century tower looked like. They spent in excess of two million pounds presenting that building, so that's a must see. Um, I'd have to have uh, a castle um, built by Edward I in Northwest Wales, so let's say Carnarvon. And as a contrast um, to all of these, I would say a late medieval castle, which has none of those uh, military characteristics. Um, so by way of total contrast, somewhere like the famous Bodium in Sussex, which is a twee little castle, really no more than a sort of a, a, a stately home for a knight, with military bits tacked on to to give it the requisite military um, costume. But that's a a very famous, beautiful little castle that's a nice antidote to these hulking great royal castles that I've had for my other two choices. That was Mark Morris. His book, Castle, A History of the Buildings That Shaped Medieval Britain, is available now, published by Windmill Books. And Mark also leads tours around some of Britain's most fascinating castles. You can find his trips to great castles of North Wales and Roman and medieval South Wales via traveleditions.co.uk. Now before we go, I'm pleased to announce that tickets for our 2019 History Weekends are now on sale. This year we have events at Chester from the 25th to 27th of October and then Winchester from the 1st to 3rd of November. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for the full lineups and to purchase tickets. And that is all for today, but we shall return on Thursday when Jared Diamond will be exploring historical crises. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.